Perhaps nothing is more comforting in the midst of suffering than to have a friend who knows and understands your situation. Last year I had the opportunity to reconnect with a friend, really a bunch of friends, but a particular friend who had suffered for 15 years with a health problem. And we had lost touch um, after we had moved to a different state and whatnot, and we reconnected finally last year. And I came to, to hear more about, as I had heard over the years, that he had a de- debilitating health problem. He had some serious foot pain. It wasn't gout, but it was some sort of foot pain that caused him to eventually walk on crutches and have tremendous pain. And uh, for some reason, whether uh, maybe even because of medicine, he, he had and wrestled with depression. And at this reunion dinner with all of our friends, he leaned over to me in the middle of a conversation and he said, you know what, out of everyone here, I'm the only one who understands what you went through with your gout pain, even though he did not, the pain, the symptoms were incredibly similar. And then he also said, and you are the only one who truly understands what I went through. And it's true. There's something so comforting in having a friend that knows exactly what it is you're going through. Our passage this morning is a reminder that in our suffering for the faith, we not only have one who knows our sufferings, but we have one who will do something about it. And not only has this one, who is Jesus, befriended us, not only is He our friend, He is in fact Lord over all, and in Him there is all comfort. I invite you to turn with me to Revelation the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We are in verses 8 to 11. Go ahead and turn there with me now. We continue our series in the book of Revelation concerning the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, chapter 2, and then 3. The main point of Revelation is quite simple. Jesus encourages His people to faithfulness through greater dependence and trust in Him. This letter was written towards the end of the first century, written by a man named John. This is John who had wrote the Gospel of John and then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he's writing to Christians who were suffering in the late 1st century. Opposition, persecution had grown. And in this very last book of the Bible, Jesus gives John a vision. A vision of the things that are to come. And for suffering Christians, suffering for the faith, Jesus reminds them of his own final judgment and destruction of Satan and Christ's final judgment of those who oppose Him. He also reminds His people of final deliverance for them as He returns to gather up His people and bring them once and for all to the end, to Himself in the end. And we look at these seven letters to seven different churches, but really these letters were to go to all of the Christians there in that, in that time and that these churches, they really represent all Christians during that time, and even for us here today. And in all of these letters, Christ calls His people to persevere in in different ways. And so, one reason why we go to this series, uh, which will take us to the end of June, is because I wanted to, to have us all be looking at the different ways that Christ encourages us towards faithfulness, and also the different rebukes. Because the calls and the rebukes will address us all to some degree throughout the whole entire time here, or throughout, the, throughout all the different letters. And in today's letter, he calls us to enduring faithfulness. 
He calls us to enduring faithfulness. If you're taking notes here, just write enduring faithfulness. That's kind of the main topic here today. And you go ahead and look there, and I'll read the section. Chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We see in point number one, the Christian's suffering. Point number one, the Christian's suffering. These Christians were in Smyrna, which is modern-day Izmir, Turkey, a coastal city of, of western Turkey. And um, they were clearly suffering. Verse 9, I know your tribulation, or your affliction, and your poverty. He says, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus here, through John, wants to give this church in Smyrna a revelation this is the revelation here, at least a little bit of it. And he says that he knows their sufferings. He writes to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Again, we mentioned last week, we're not quite sure if this angel is uh, sort of a, a heavenly angelic counterpart to the earthly church. Or it could be uh, perhaps the leader, the main leader of the church there. We're not entirely sure. But nevertheless, these are the words there. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and poverty and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You see their affliction, which is detailed in two different ways. They have affliction. What is it? It's their poverty and the fact that they experience slander. And this apparently came from the Jews in their city. That's where the sentence, that's the way the sentence seems to, what the sentence seems to imply. The slander of those, poverty, maybe that comes from those who say they are Jews and who are not. He doesn't mean that all ethnic Jews, of course, are bad or anything like that. As we know, many Christians there were of Jewish descent. In fact, a huge population of Smyrna back then was Jewish, and some of them were Christians. So he's not saying that all Jews are bad here. What John's referring to is he's mentioning these Jews who continued to reject Jesus as God's chosen one, that is the Messiah. These Jews, of course, claimed to follow the Lord of the Old Testament Scriptures, but they rejected God, Jesus Christ, God's chosen Messiah, spoken of in the Old Testament prophesied of in the old testament and instead of finding him worthy of worship as he took on flesh lived a holy life died on the cross rose from the dead all for the forgiveness of sins for those who would repent and believe instead of, it, of finding him worthy of worship they found him worthy of crucifixion and so they killed him and of course from the beginning they had always been known these jews had always been known to persecute christians just as they persecuted and killed the Christ. They did this in Jerusalem, as we've been looking at, or we have been looking at in the book of Acts. And so they did this here in Smyrna. Smyrna was part of the Roman kingdom at the time. I'll give you a, a brief understanding of Smyrna, which is important to our passage. Smyrna was part of the Roman kingdom at the time, and they were underneath Rome's rule, obviously. And, and underneath Rome's rule, Judaism was tolerated. 
It might have not have been what the emperor, the, the religious practice of what the emperor desired, but Judaism was tolerated. And insofar as Rome thought that Christianity was a mere sect of Judaism, then Christianity too was also tolerated. But when Christians were not seen as a sect, but something new, then they got in trouble. Rome outlawed new religions. Judaism they tolerated, but anything new they stamped out. You can imagine how this might have gotten them into trouble. The Jews, if you remember, they were hostile to Christians. And as they slandered Jesus to Roman authority, so they slandered Christians, so that they would be thrown under the bus. Many Jews, if you remember, even in the Old Testament, they had a reputation of colluding with pagan nations. Think of the Jews colluding with the Romans to crucify Jesus. Many of them had already adopted emperor worship. They had given themselves to celebrating pagan festivals and rituals. Many had already abandoned the Lord and they had ran to Rome. So then imagine, right? Imagine. Like if you guys had uh, people around you who wanted to throw you under the bus, of course they're going to go to someone who might be more powerful to get you into trouble. And that seems to be what's going on here. Imagine out of jealousy or dislike and hatred of their Christ. They slandered Christians to the authority, saying, these Christians refuse to worship the emperor. And of course, what do you think happened to the Christians? Well, they'd catch more persecution for worshiping Christ alone, as well as for being holy unto the Lord, right? They're going to refuse the Roman practices. And so they would be thrown under the bus. Persecution came in different intensities. Some of these Christians were ostracized. Imagine losing social standing, Right? You're not really in league or colluding with the Romans. So already they might have certain prejudices against you. Not only that though, but imagine the large population of Jews. They too are against you. So that means the Christians, this little band of Christians, right? they don't have social connections. They don't have far reaches into the community. And so they suffered financially. Thus they are in poverty, it says. Really, though, there were greater problems for these Christians in an earthly sense. Not only does history show that they lost out on financial opportunity, being socially ostracized, some of them lost their lives. Take the church father Polycarp. Have you guys heard of the church father Polycarp? His name means much fruit, many fruit. He was a bishop of Smyrna, bishop of the church of Smyrna. Certainly a couple generations after this letter was written, we're talking, I mean, he lived in... uh, you know, around 150s. But here, this letter is being written to the late, to the Christians in the late first century. But, the, but this guy was pastoring the church there in Smyrna, and he lived and shepherded these people for the glory of Jesus Christ. But it was the Jews who denounced Polycarp before the Roman authorities. What, what was their charge? It was for defaming the emperor and the Roman religion by refusing to worship the emperor. So, You can imagine how much he was going to get in trouble. And together with Rome, the Jews lit him up in flames, burned him to death, burned him alive to the death. God's people were being plotted against by those who claimed to love God. So you can see why Christ himself says there in verse 9, they say they are Jews, right? They say they are God's favorite people in the Old Testament. But really, because they reject Jesus and persecute Christians, verse 9 says, Jesus says they are a synagogue of Satan, a gathering place for Satan and his work. As these Jews falsely accused Christians 
They prove themselves, don't they? To be in league with Satan, the great accuser. But here's the word of comfort. Jesus says there in verse 9, I know your sufferings. I know them. There's a great level of comfort again, knowing that Jesus himself knows about their tribulations and even our own tribulations, whether for the faith or even suffering that comes from living in this sinful world, the suffering that we ourselves bring about. He knows them. For them, it's comforting that he knows. Well, why? Is it comforting that Jesus knows your sufferings, Christians? Let me ask you, is it? Why is it comforting that he knows? Or, or is, it, is it not really much comfort at all? Our answer says so much about who we think God is. I think a good amount of people uh, might say that, okay, you know, I recognize that Jesus knows. He is sovereign after all. But you know what? I just don't find that all that comforting. Here's the reason why I think many Christians might not find this all too comforting. It's because they think that Jesus is about as strong as their grandma. Sure, maybe Jesus has some nice thoughts about me when I suffer and go through life. And maybe he'll always be there for me emotionally as long as he's around. But that's about it. Praise God for grandmas. You know, I don't want to denigrate grandmas, especially on Mother's Day. But that's no comfort in our greatest affliction. So, for example, when I was going through gout pain, or even I remember when I was witnessing to one of my friends, uh, telling him about Jesus, and uh, this guy pulled out his gun and pressed it right to my forehead, cocked it. He said, if you, don't talk, if you don't stop talking about Jesus, he lit off a whole string of curse words too. If you don't stop talking about Jesus, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. What's your grandma going to do? Except have nice thoughts about you. Oftentimes I think that's how we think about Jesus. He's just around. Sure, he might be a little bit kind-hearted. But there's no real lasting comfort from Christ knowing. Because there's no real deliverance at the end of the day. Is that your understanding of Jesus? Or, friends, is your understanding of Jesus the same understanding that John had? The same thing that's portrayed in the book of Revelation where Christ is Lord over everything. That He is the one and only true King who knows and is so intimately aware of all of His people's sufferings and afflictions. Is He your Christ who will right every single wrong? And at his chosen time will vindicate his name and vindicate all of his people as well. If you think of who has some awesome faithfulness, you know, you think of soldiers. You think of the saying, you know, leave no man behind. Well, friends, think of the faithfulness of God. Who will leave none of his people behind. Think of your own faithfulness when someone did something evil to you or your family members. I remember one time um, my mother was driving me home uh, back from school and uh, these guys kind of cut her off and they were driving really aggressively. Like they almost, you know, she had the right of way and they kind of cut in front of her in a way where they clearly knew that she was coming. And then they, you know, stopped their car and they were cursing at her, sticking their heads out of the window. Man, you, you know, you guys can imagine maybe how you guys might have felt in that situation, but 
My desire for justice, probably more so unrighteous justice or unrighteous anger, man, that lit up really fast for me. Because I was thinking, why would you do that to my mom? Why would you do that to us? Just imagine Jesus, whose righteousness is always present, 100%, and always just. His justice is always working. His faithfulness is always working, backed by His 100% love, and it is always holy, and He has absolute power. And so what does Jesus want these suffering Christians to remember? He says, I know. I know. Look at verse 8. To the church in Smyrna, what does Jesus want the people to know? The words of the first and the last. It's an element repeated from chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. These letters, they constantly refer back to who is this Jesus? What does this Jesus have to do with us? And in the scriptures, you know what the first and the last does? The term comes from Isaiah chapter 41, Isaiah chapter 44. The Lord, it refers to the Lord Yahweh bringing judgment against those who persecute his chosen. It even says he tramples underfoot those who war against his people. In those passages, it is he who brings forgiveness of sin to those who call upon his name, and it is those that he delivers once and for all. Here in Revelation chapter 2, it reminds these suffering Christians, Jesus says, I am he, the Lord over all. Christians here in America, today, you guys, you know, you might not be experiencing quite the same types of things as the Bishop of Polycarp, uh, Bishop Polycarp did there in Smyrna. But we today, no doubt, are seeing more misunderstanding, more ostracism, increased hostility from the culture around us. Maybe you feel it yourself as you think about standing for Christ to your family members and your co-workers. You know that standing for Jesus Christ comes at a cost. Maybe the cost is family tightness, you know, the tightness of your family. Maybe you know the cost there is, is that your, the, your family, the family that you love so much, is just simply going to think of you less. Distance you from them even more. Because you think people should not determine what is right and wrong for themselves. But you believe that God actually has determined this for His creation, for His people. Maybe you have opinions on how they should not be using their bodies. How they should think about sexuality who they should marry, even down to the things that they ought to do, like drunkenness or not do in terms of drunkenness. And we could go on and on. Their worship, most importantly, who they give their hearts to. Maybe you think that they have actually sinned against their Creator and they simply just don't like hearing it. Maybe you think that they need to be saved by Jesus Christ. Or maybe you know as you stand for Jesus Christ, maybe the cost for you is security. Maybe you know that if you stand for Christ in front of your coworkers, uh, even if you're, you know, at a restaurant after work. You know that if you stand for Jesus Christ, you might not climb the professional ladder at work because you refuse to, I don't know, be holy, because you refuse to lie to get the job done. Maybe the cost for you is that you simply would not fit in with that group of friends that you've been wanting so badly. Because you choose to stand for the things of Christ, you know they're not going to invite you around to do everything that they do. And then they, they make you subtly choose them or your Jesus. 
you know, I'm sure, that choosing Jesus Christ comes at a cost, and so you may fear. But if we see Jesus rightly, which Jesus wants us to, according to the passage, if we understand that Jesus knows your sufferings and your difficulties, your struggles, that can be comforting, even in the midst of those, even in the midst of the struggles. Even though there is a great cost in Jesus, there is greater and greatest gain because of who he is. That is what he's doing. He's holding out who he is so that the church in Smyrna would latch themselves onto him once again. In him there is greater, greatest gain. How could there not be with him who is the first and the last, right? The sovereign one, the eternal one, the all-powerful one, the all-loving one. How could there not be when he is standing for you? He stands for those who stand for him. Remember the one who is on the throne, that one is the one who holds you, Christian, in his very hand. Therefore, we need not fear. Look there in verse 10. Do not fear. This is point number two. Do not fear. Point number one was the Christian suffering. Jesus knows. Point number two, he says, do not fear. Whether present circumstances or future circumstances, do not fear. Verse 10, he says there, do not fear what you are about to suffer. So here he wants them to focus on their future. Of course, he already knows their present. But here he directs them to their future. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. He's telling them that their affliction will go from poverty to something worse, even death, suffering, jail, prison, tribulation. Now here, I want you guys to understand what he means when he says, do not fear. I don't want you guys to think that we are unfaithful or we are somehow in sin if we actually find some sort of earthly circumstance as frightening, like persecution. Certainly we're going to experience this emotion of fear, persecution when we experience that that's going to certainly cause those emotions to come up what john what john though is addressing is a situation where fear or the trust in man so fearing man is more than the fear or trust we have in god that's really what he's getting at here and a telltale sign that one is sort of taken over by the fear of man is whether you whether they remain remain silent in the face of difficulty On the other hand, even though we may experience the emotion of fear, one proves that they fear God more than man as they remain bold in difficulty and suffering. Right? They remain bold in Jesus Christ, just as the disciples do in the book of Acts. Though they faced difficult circumstances, yet they were bold in Jesus Christ. They continued preaching the gospel. This boldness is what Jesus was calling them to. This language of 10 days of tribulation, did you guys notice that there? This 10 days of testing, that language is really interesting. We're not quite sure if this is, if he's talking about a specific literal 10 days that's going to come up in the future, or is he specifically or only merely referring to some sort of symbolic 10 days? Uh, we're not quite sure, but well, the language itself was to, I think, recall the life of an Old Testament prophet who was bold despite circumstances and who was also tested for 10 days. This is the prophet Daniel, who lived underneath the pagan king of Babylon during a time of exile. And he was greatly pressured to assimilate to pagan practices. Do you see already the parallels with the church of Smyrna? He was eventually denounced by others before the authorities 
and he suffered, but yet through it all he remained faithful and bold, and he refused to defile himself with the Babylonian practices that went against the Lord. So he was tested. He actually invited the testing for 10 days in his boldness. He said, go ahead and test me. Give me 10 days. I will remain faithful. And as Daniel persevered, God gave Daniel favor in the eyes of the king. But as some of you guys may know, the story doesn't end there. When a new came, king came to rule, that king's governors went on to purposefully set Daniel up. And he had him eventually thrown into the lion's den to be devoured by lions, supposedly. Awfully similar to the Christian situation in Smyrna. Jews collude with the rulers to have Christians persecuted. And when, then when thinking about Polycarp's situation, even killed. Well, thinking about Daniel's situation, right? As they were to recall Daniel's situation, how were they to be, how might they have been encouraged to think about Daniel's situation and then remain faithful? The answer is, is by remembering who God is. It's by remembering who God is. Who is God to Daniel? God is the one who sent an angel to shut the lion's mouths. God is the one who delivers and vindicates. And so even before the king, Daniel is able to say, I have done nothing wrong. And even the king knew it. God is the Lord who judges, who brings rulers into existence, and then who brings them down. Think about the Christians in Smyrna. Even if the devil himself was to throw them in prison, we certainly know that trials, as we've seen in in James, God even uses there as a time of testing to refine our faith so that we might live more vigorously for Jesus. Even if the devil himself was to throw them into prison, eventually to bring about their deaths, they need not fear the devil or the Jews or the emperor of Rome. Why is that? Because all that Jesus is, Jesus is the chosen one of God. Right? He is the one sent of God to shut the mouth and to crush the head of Satan himself. Jesus Christ is the victor over sin, over death, and over Satan. This is the very heart of the gospel. This is why Jesus came. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, this is why Jesus came. This is the heart of the gospel. That all men had sinned against God their creation. We had rejected him and earned for ourselves just condemnation and just judgment. And we deserve death and eternal hell, the Bible says. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his eternal son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we should have in all righteousness, to die on the death, to die the death that his people deserved on the cross, bearing the wrath that we ourselves deserved. Why is that? Why does he do that? It is so that all who turn from their sins and believe would, in fact, be saved. And so even though death was a consequence of sin, right? The judgment, eternal death as well. Jesus bears our wrath, dies the death we should have, so that in him we would live again. That's why he got up from the dead three days later, so that all who are in him would live once again. And so sin, death, and Satan would not have final say over us. But Christ would. And that message of hope is not only just for Christians, Christians, we, hold, we are to hold that out to the non-Christian world. And so we hold that out to you. And Jesus calls you to turn from your sins and believe. And you too, friend, will know this hope where sin, death, and Satan will never have the last say over you. But Christ himself, who is victor, champion, and savior, he would. He is 
deliverer. He is, look there in verse 1, by the way, he is the one who died. Or verse 8, sorry. He is the one who died and who came to life again. Christ is the one who delivers us from physical death through his resurrection to new life. So Christian, do you see there that because we are hidden in our Savior, who died but rose again, because we have been hidden in him, our great trailblazer, we are guaranteed safe passage out of the grave and into eternal life. Who is your Jesus, Christian? Is it comforting to know that he knows? Whatever difficulties you may be going through for Jesus Christ, are you hiding your life with Christ, knowing that he has your back, that he is with you in your troubles, and that he knows your sufferings and your frailties? And he will give you strength. Do you know that though you may lose family and friends and earthly security, that in him you gain a thousandfold, if not in this life, then certainly the next? Guys, if you know yourself well enough, you know that you still fear man at times more than you fear God. But this is actually very exciting as we know ourselves to struggle with this. It means that there is still more knowledge of God that we get to grow in, isn't there? There's still more to know about Christ who defeats fear of man. There's more, more, more to know about God and Jesus Christ that will move our hearts to fear God and so not fear man as much. There's more of Christ to know, more comfort of Christ to receive, more security in Christ to experience, more faithfulness of Christ to walk in. Knowing Christ banishes fear. Knowing Christ banishes fear. Psalm 46 verse 1, what does it say there? It says God is. God is what? God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. You know what he says then? He says, therefore, we will not fear. Given who God is, refuge, strength, present help in trouble, the Lord Yahweh over all, God who is steadfast in His love and who always delivers on His promises. Therefore, we will not fear, even in death. If you turn over to 118, Revelation 118, Jesus' sovereignty is expressed in a very unique way. It is He who holds the keys to death, meaning He's sovereign over death itself. He's been there. And he's already conquered it. And he has hidden you in him. Christian, he has hidden you in himself. And it says there in verse 10, Revelation 2.10, for those who are faithful even to the death. Look there at verse 10. Encouraging you guys, he says, I will give you the crown of life. Forget the kingly crown of Rome. When Jesus, the conqueror, Lord over all, the true king, will bestow on you the crown of life. The wreath that goes on top of the head for those who finish the race in faithfulness. This is who Jesus is. He is the Lord, the first and the last, who died and came to life. It's by trusting in Christ who is our Savior and Victor. We need not fear. Even in the worst of circumstances, even if death were to come in Christ who has died and come to life again, he says, do not fear. He also says there, 
be faithful. This brings us to point number three. Point number three, be faithful. Look there at 10 and 11, last sentence of 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Even though we die a physical death, we will not be hurt by the second death or eternal punishment. For the rest of our time, I want to spend some time looking at what will help us be faithful to Christ to our last breath. First thing is turning to Christ and entrusting ourselves to Him. Now, in many ways, that's exactly what we just did in points number one and two. I'm holding out Jesus Christ. We're looking at Christ again from the Scriptures, who He is, that we might know Him better, see Him better, know Him more clearly, and that would get us to not fear, but then also be faithful. We see who Jesus is, and that enlivens, that that gives boldness and fuel to our faithfulness. But I want us to think specifically about giving application to our lives as members of this particular church. Not only are we to turn to Christ to see Him again and know Him more deeply, we are, as members of this church, to help others do that as well. We are to help others do that as well. This is the second application point. The first is turn to Christ. The second is help others turn to Christ. We can forget that John wrote this letter to a church, a group of Christians. Right? He was concerned that they be faithful together and that the members of the church be ministers to one another, encouraging them to greater faithfulness. In all that is at stake when standing for Christ, right? And everything that's at stake when somebody stands for Christ, how can you, as a church member, extend the love of Jesus Christ to support your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? To support your brothers and sisters in Jesus? Has that, is that question on your mind? You guys realize that Hopefully, Lord willing, you are all standing for Christ in different ways. Is it ever on your mind about how you can come alongside them as co-laborers, fellow soldiers of Jesus Christ, to help communicate to them the love of Jesus Christ? You guys realize that Jesus, that Jesus uses you guys to be extensions of himself in love so that our brothers and sisters would be loved? so that we would know more about Jesus Christ's love for us. He uses us to deliver it. For those who experience or have experienced physical pain, let's just sort of broaden the suffering level, not just being persecuted for the faith, but living in this sinful world. For those who might experience physical pain and that type of suffering, and so maybe they fear more physical pain. How can you come alongside the hurting so that their suffering is more bearable in Christ with you as their brother or sister in Christ. You guys ever think about how you can bear each other's burdens and in that moment of the fear of physical suffering, help others be reminded of who their Jesus is? You think about, how is it that I can provide comfort in Christ? You know, as one who has experienced I would say, a great deal of physical pain for a decent amount of time. I know that in those moments I've struggled and suffered to see the significance of my suffering. I have no doubt that God is sovereign, says it in the Word of God. I know He is sovereign over everything. But in the midst of that level 10,000 pain, I struggle to see how God will use this in the lives of His people and even in my own life. Brother and sister, For those who might struggle like me, and I know that there are others out there, I encourage you to to come alongside them, those sufferers, 
and let them know how you have been encouraged by their faith, by their perseverance, by their fight to see Jesus Christ, and as they struggle and strive to cling to Him. Let them know that because of their endurance, let them know that they now have an example, a real-life example of something like a Job-like faith. Let them know where it is true that, you, that through them you have come to see and more know, know more of Jesus Christ's sufferings even and His faithfulness to the Father. Encourage them by their walk of faith. Let them know that through them you have come to see more of how Christ is the only thing worth relying on. That's just for physical suffering. Now, now let's think of those who know that standing for Jesus living in this sinful world as Christians, might cost some, somebody financial security because of their faith. Church member, let me encourage you to think, how is it that I can provide security in Jesus Christ to them on behalf of our Christ? Can I provide financially for them? Personally? And then if not, do you guys ever think, well, gosh, how can the family of God help come alongside this person? They might not know the struggles. I know them because they told them to me. But now how do I bring in the church or bring in the elders? Let me encourage you guys. If you know people who are suffering financially or even suffering physically, let me encourage you to bring that, the, the issue to the elders. Maybe it is that the help can come from the Benevolence Fund, which we have in our church. If you guys want to give, you can just write it on the envelope. This should go to the Benevolence Fund. We'll put that into a fund that goes specifically to help people who are in need. And this need looks like, it could look like different ways of meeting their financial need. Um, and the elders can distribute fi- money through that avenue. If it's not appropriate that the elders would, that the church would be helping out through the Benevolence Fund, we can at least help you think about how you can go about providing this security to other people, even financially. I've been super encouraged because I know that more than one person has come up to me and said, Hey, Jeremy, I want to help somebody financially. Who needs help? I've been so encouraged by people who have come to me and asked me that. Whether it be $100, $200, $500, $1,000, whatever it is. Someone I'm thinking about right here has actually done this. Another person came up to me and said, Hey, Jared, I want to offer somebody a no-interest loan. Is there anybody in the congregation who could use a no-interest loan? And I responded to them. I said, well, you know, the elders have to think that, you know, we don't simply want to be handing out cash because that could actually enable somebody in their laziness. You know, we don't want to do that. But where appropriate, we're able to think with that person. And at least we know. And so that way, if we find out somebody who's in need, then we let them know. And then that person can help them financially. It's super encouraging. You guys realize that there's more, there's more than one person who is thinking like that here in this church? Wouldn't that be encouraging if all of us were thinking like that? Even if you don't have $100, maybe you have just $5. And you can help buy this person a meal. Even that is super encouraging. Especially if that meal comes with fellowship. Imagine if all of us were learning to communicate and even share the security that Christians can have in Jesus Christ in the face of fear. Here's another one. So many people fear losing social standing, social status. That social status maybe that we've worked so hard to obtain in the workplace. We can think, how can we as church members remind our brothers and sisters who are fearing... How can we help remind them about the status that we have as children of Jesus Christ, children of God? Sure, maybe we might lose our status in the world, but we know that that's fleeting anyway. 
Christians, you guys realize that we have the opportunity to come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christian love, reminding them of the love that we have in the family of God where Christ Jesus is head. You guys ever think about that? Do you guys know others in the congregation who might not have Christian family? Who might not have Christian friends? And what are you doing to come alongside them so that you can provide something of a familial security and love for them? To bring them into their home? It is difficult enough as it is outside, especially when you fear losing status and social standing in the workplace as you stand for Jesus Christ. So church, let's just come around alongside our brothers and sisters and remind them of the status we have of being children of God adopted in Jesus Christ. We know, we know that with every fear we may have, Christ answers every one of them, no doubt. We also need to remember so often Christ intends to answer your brothers and sisters' fears through you. Delivering heavenly remedies, so to speak. The heavenly remedies of Christian love, of encouragement, security to those who are in need. And so we together, as Jesus Christ's church, like the church in Smyrna, as churches everywhere, can help each other be faithful and endure to the end with no fear but trusting in who Jesus is, our Lord and Savior, the Eternal One, all-sovereign, all-loving, the One who holds the keys to death, the One who will give us the crown of life. And in Him, did you notice that even though they are in poverty, yet they are rich. In Him, there is eternal riches. We can help each other be faithful and endure until the end, reminding each other of who Jesus is, Certainly it is through our own faithfulness to turning to see Jesus Christ and trusting in Him that we endure, but it is also by us helping one another understand more of the love of Jesus Christ and the comfort that comes in Christ. He who knows and will, who will deliver us once and for all and preserve us all the way until the end. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we know that our hope is solid. We know that our hope is immovable. Not ultimately because we are that faithful or because we are that moral, but ultimately, Lord Jesus, it is because of who you are and your own faithfulness. We give you praise, Lord, that you are so powerful and you say that there is nothing no one who will snatch us out of the Father's hand and no one who will snatch us out of your hand. We thank you, God, that you preserve us indeed all the way until the end in your great sovereign power. We thank you, Lord, that the most, the greatest evil powers in the universe are nothing in comparison to you. You have shown us, Lord Jesus, that you are victor over sin, death, and Satan. And we know, Lord, that you have hid us with you so that we would have safe passage to be with you in eternal life. God, we pray that you would capture our hearts, that you would help us see more of a vision who Jesus, of who Jesus Christ is, and that we might learn to entrust ourselves to you all the more. Help expose us in our sin, where we are tempted to trust in earthly things to deliver us and to satisfy us. 
We pray, Lord, that we would not boast in our wisdom or our strength or our riches, but we would boast in the fact that you are who you are and you have made yourself known to us. These things we pray in your name. Amen.